ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਫਰਸਟ ਟਾਈਮ ਵੀ ਸੈਟ ਡਾਊਨ ਟੂ ਰਿਕਾਰਡ ਦਿਸ ਐਪੀਸੋਡ ਅ ਸ਼ੂਟਿੰਗ ਹੈਪਨ ਡਾਊਨ ਬਾਈ ਸਟ੍ਰੀਟ ਐਂਡ ਨਾਓ ਸਮਵਨਸ ਡੈਡ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਮੈਨ ਲਿਵਿੰਗ ਇਨ ਰਫ ਪਾਰਟ ਆਫ ਦ ਵਰਲਡ ਐ actually do live in a very rough part of the world and unfortunately it's becoming rougher and rougher it's got to a point where you don't know if you step outside whether you're going to come back alive or not and i do know that a certain section of listeners are probably praying that if he does step out he doesn't come back alive well so our topic for today <clears throat> yep the necessity of cruelty so some cruelty just happened right up your street uh pretty much foreign imported gangs and a very weak uh government and what else do you expect we're becoming like the next canada i mean won't be long before we start you know throwing up our own uh punjabi gangsters i suppose well this 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 no shorter than anyhow you got a lot of them in canada you know one thing which i don't understand is how do they even get to canada i mean they wanted criminals in their home country so how the hell are they even getting all these uh clear police clearances and even passports you have to ask this exact question to your family members and your uncles who let's say who say escaped india but they're still demanding for for a homeland i threw an arm struggle i say why weren't you killed why are you alive how did they let you escape Mm. Pretty much how did except you, pretty your police clearance how did they, were you allowed to get a visa how were you allowed to board an aircraft from an airport and then come to a foreign country and how, why were you not uh, extradited back mm, pretty pretty heavy questions secret deals eh secret deals and <clears throat> moving on from there now that we're discussing the necessity of cruelty here anyhow you know when i was younger around the uh, late 2012 and early 2013 period i actually discovered uh, ratan singh pangu shri gurpanth prakash and mm-hmm. what actually happened was that initially i was very uh, stunned by some of the things he had written now you need to remember this was me when i was younger and i did not have much uh, history or historical or even his- historiography knowledge back in the day so i didn't know how history was made or how it reflects through a historian's mind i definitely did not know about you know eh car so basically to me history was this uh, linear uh, progressive line in the sand which could be corrupted so i traversed all these online seek forums asking why pangu wrote what he did and you know you get a you get a horde of conflicting information because many of the guys online don't even know what the hell they're talking about hmm right so it was only later when i actually started uh, researching on my own merit and trying to understand history because pangu's apant prakash pushed me to try understanding what history was that um I learned that you know his view of history was colored in by what he believed but there were some authentic elements as well now the most problematic parts i had was that uh, one um at that time i was a vegetarian 
fully in the Gyani Thakur Singh camp. So I couldn't believe okay. that Guru Gobind Singh. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> are you surprised? No, I'm more surprised in, uh, in what camp you were. <laughs> I'm not in that camp anymore. That camp hates my guts. So anyway, um, what happened after that was basically that I sort of picked up that, you know, what, in my perception at least at the time, Guru Gobind Singh Ji eating a goat seemed pretty transgressive and blasphemous. And everything he said about Banda Singh Bhadra seemed pretty blasphemous as well. Hmm. And then what happened is that uh, after a while, I mean, when I started actually uh, learning what, you know, how history has made, I sort of understood that Bangu actually had his pros and cons. But as always, there's accurate information and then there's, you know, non-accurate information. We need to pick the non-accurate from the accurate. So, you know, just like uh, as it is with every historic chronicle, but when you're young and you have all this uh, information being bombarded at you, you sort of don't realize, you know, how these things work out, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So one thing which always struck with me about Bangu was that, you know, when he recounts the... Uh, narration or he re re uh, relates what happened during the Vardaka Lukara. I always got this image in my mind that's the Punjabi dusk and shell shocks children crying for their parents, mothers looking for their husbands, but there are children as well, you know, corpses laying on the ground, coloring the Punjabi earth red. And against this backdrop of a red sunset, you have all the missile sardars, just as in Ramgariya, you know, tearing off his own clothes and turbans to bind the wounds of the fatalities, the casualties, you know, the other sardars taking care of the, uh, you know, orphans, the children's trying to take stock of the situation. And Jathedar Jassa Singh tells a Sikh, and, you know, this is an important point, that it is time for Ahira Sahib. We can't forego our ahead. And this is especially to those, you know, people who claim minority status in the Panth and say, fuck it ahead, don't worry, we have a very strong episode coming for your types as well. Then you can try cancelling us if you want, but our voice will be out. And then if you do cancel us for Sanuki, even if you shut our voices, at least what we have said will always be out on the internet. Would you agree with that? Well, given the technology we have, those questions will always stay in the air. Always stay in the air. And, you know, Baba Jassa Singhaluwalia, you know, for all his faults, tells the uh, Granthi Singh to start, you know, the Rhera Sahib part. And the Granthi Singh does this. And when they say Dukhdaru Sukhrog now, of course, there's that uh, real law to claim that, you know, that all we have today, our, head, our history, is basically Pujarivati, right? They do say some things like that, yeah. And it's become that, it's gotten to a point, you know, where everything they personally disagree with becomes Pujarivati. Well, that's, that's classic for anything, yeah? For anybody across the world. 
And I'm waiting for the day when suddenly they say that even Guru Granth Sahib might have been formed by the Pujari. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, that's that's where they're heading to. But anyway, moving on from there, when he says this, you know, the Khalsa starts shouting Jakare. They're happy that, you know, even despite this massacre, we have, you know, survived. We are stronger. And this spirit, this infectious spirit, spirit which is, you know, rapidly running, you know, within them, culminates in this Nihang suddenly summarizing their emotions by shouting out that the filth has been removed, but the essence remains. Mm, yep, those famous lines. Yep, those famous lines. And when I was younger, I used to uh, think that how cruel can they be? Like, how cruel must this Nihang have been? But then, you know, over time, as I matured, you know, went through training, saw life for what it was, I understood that what essentially that Nihang is saying that the earth has been removed, but the gold remains. You know, even today to get diamond, you need to chip away the rock, right? Or it can be the British monarchy. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> Anyway, um, going on further from there, it's amazing, isn't it, that when the Nihang does ward that out, you know, I used to think this was a cruel individual, but now I know that if you don't burn away the firth, if the firth doesn't sacrifice itself, the gold will never be revealed. True. Right? Yep. If, right, if a mother does not undergo pain, the child will never be born. And stuff you feminists, if you start saying that children should not be born, it's gotten so bad that one of these feminists harassed me for three days on social media saying that giving birth to uh, children is uh, mentally depleting for the woman and that, you know, no childbirth should be allowed because it's a patriarchal imposition upon women. Well, that was very intellectual of her. Could have thanked her. Hmm. And it's just amazing, isn't it? It's it's amazing where we have reached with this stupidity. This you know fog of work has really screwed us up. But then at the other you know other end of the spectrum, if you think about it. <clears throat> Regarding everything down here, you know, the Nihang has understood something which we haven't understood, and that is the necessity of cruelty. You have to be cruel in life to obtain something. How do you actually define cruelty? Cruelty, I'd say, is the act where you deprive an individual of an emotional opportunity in which they try realigning reality to their own designs. This, I would say, is the definition of constructive cruelty. Denying somebody justice is cruelty? Yes, I agree. Denying somebody of their basic human rights is cruelty? Yeah, everything? Yep. 
but the right of life, the most sacred one, sometimes even that has to be taken away in case of criminals and, you know, you know, all this stuff. So would that be cruelty or necessary cruelty? If I were a guy who had killed five people because I was not in my senses or I was out of, out of anger or revenge, maybe I was a drunk driver, would you, in your, if you were the head of a state, enact such laws that I could be executed for this? Yes. And you, if, if I were to be executed, would that be cruel or justice? It, the very act of execution would be cruel, but in a context, it would be retribution and justice. Hmm. No, See, sounds good. <laughs> one thing you need to remember down here, Navjit Singhji, is, you know, Guru Nanak tells us in Japji Sahib, the trust is that hukam is reality. I recently wrote an article on Substack where I do argue for the same, that hukam should be interpreted as reality. Hukam Rajai Jalna Nanak Lakyanal, walk within hukam. Right? Yeah. And <clears throat> amazingly enough, you know, Guru Nanak also denounces the religious world. You know, other than Sikhi, he denounces all other religions. There's a Verse which has stuck in my mind for a long time. Now, <clears throat> the contradiction down here, and this is a funny contradiction, is that our clowns translate patala patala kagasa agas You know what they try doing is saying that Guru Nanak is saying there are lots of planets. That's put simply, right? Did you? Then when it comes to Vedaka and Akvata, they know that if they translate that line to say this is what the Vedas say, they won't get any pakoras at the 1984 commemoration events. Uh, no pakora. The pakoras are only reserved for some selected few, including yep, you. Because, yep, because the Ved are Sanatan. Now, <laughs> <laughs> You know what Guru Nanak is actually saying? We have read too much into this. We have imposed a very hyper definition on these, but Patal or Patal is the undervolt like, right? Mm -hmm. Agas is the upper vault or a heaven. So if you look at the Vedas, they confirm this as well, is that what they're saying is there are countless undervolts and countless heavens and great many sages have fatigued themselves looking for this. This is what the Vedas say singularly, right? Yeah. So there's no question here of whether Guru Nanak is confirming that the Vedas are telling the truth or whether they're lying. So far in this standard line, he's just saying that this is what the Vedas claim. The next line basically translates that the Talmudic scriptures from which Judaism emanates those scriptures talk about 18,000 worlds. And there is a line in the Talmud, I think, which does say that, you know, God moves through the 18,000 worlds. Hmm, okay. Right? Lekha hoita lekha lekha hoivinas. Now, lekha means account. So whose account is Guru Nanak talking about? That's the question. Right? The account is of hukam, of reality. And what he's essentially saying is that if we start accounting for reality, if we could, 
even then we wouldn't be able to do it because we will die, but reality will keep on going and going. It's almost human, like... Human life time is way yep. too short to absorb all those things. Yep, and you can compare it to uh, something which has, uh, which has uh, occurred America great infamy. In 1899, the uh, commissioner of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Charles H. Duell, do you know what he claimed? Tell me. Everything that can be invented has been invented. Oh, was this guy? Okay. <laughs> right. And it's, it's a ludicrous comment, isn't it? No, no, no. Uh, he had alternative facts. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he was a postmodernist before postmodernism. But anyway, as reality continues, life continues, innovation will continue. It's like uh, asking someone to count how much grass, how many blades of grass have been in existence historically, how many are in existence today, and how many in existence will be in the future. That's what it is. That's how impossible it is to account reality. So at the end of the day, we cannot account with these scriptures at least, they're writers, they're common humans. That is what Guru Nanak is implying. Muhammad and the writers of the Vedas were common humans. And you know, we common humans cannot account for reality. Only the one who has fashioned it can account for reality. These scriptures cannot account for reality. So why would you trust them to account for the next world? Valid. Valid, right. So what Guru Nanak is emphasizing here is that, you know, don't be an idiot. Don't be a moron. Make hukam, make reality your mentor to live life by. But can't the reality change if, if I pray hard enough? You know what amazes me is that nowhere in Gurbani do the gurus claim to be able to alter hukam, but these babas, they must be something different. Oh, what if I, like, uh, I do something really, really sacred deep in the forest somewhere? Like what? I could do endless mantra and everything. Nothing like that, Navjit Singhji, works. I mean, how many people have tried doing it? How many people have tried doing it? Well, our Prime Minister did. <laughs> did it work? Well, of course, he's a Prime Minister two times. <laughs> uh, well, will he be Prime Minister forever? Well, he's a human being, so can't be forever. Well, there you go. There you go. And that's the thing. So... You can't change reality, so why not just apprentice yourself to reality and learn from it? Now, Hukam or reality is a very impartial teacher, right? Impartial and cruel. Impartial and cruel. And, okay, do you know Machiavelli? Oh, the Italian guy. You seem very disappointed. No, because I, I, I've been reading him. You know, I just started reading him. And yeah, he makes a lot of sense. But uh, well, I'm, I must yep. tell you, he's, he's not for the faint-hearted. 
you know, Machiavelli, let's just say great men in general have never claimed that they actually invented something or happened upon something and they, uh, via their own originality, right? They've or always you could also said, say yep. that real knowledge is not meant for the masses. No, not for the masses. It's and there, you need to, but, but yep. they, they won't take it because it's too uncomfortable for them. And that's exactly what I was getting at, that you need to have a perception now. If you look at Charles Darwin, you know, discovering evolution, the man literally, when he went on that seven-month trip, he, you know, Darwin was very effeminate when he was younger. His father hated him. His father literally wanted to bash his brain out. His elder brother was a very successful scientist, but we don't remember him. We remember Darwin. So, you know, the father decided that, uh, you know, Charlie could just become a priest and roam the countryside on Saturdays collecting specimens for his, you know, collection. And they enrolled Charlie into a botanical institute in London whose professor advised him to go abroad the Beagle. And when he was on the Beagle, he sort of learned to stay out of the sailor's ways. You know, that this guy, this sailor is aggressive, that sailor is a bit kind, that sailor is alcoholic. He studied the reality of his situation. And from there, he developed the principles which allowed him to... Uh, identify evolution hmm. right now come down all these years later uh, have you heard about Ray Dalio mm, can't remember so I would say no okay so he's the head of Bridgewater Asset Management uh, they were they're one of the uh, world's premier asset management companies financial companies for big players like Warner Brothers and you know governments and uh, basically, his was the only company which tripled its several billion dollar investments during the 2008 global recession. I've heard of Bridgewater. Right. And Dalio basically came up with this uh, system where, you know, he sacks unperforming employees. He's got a computer which advises him. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, Dalio says, stay in reality. Darwin says stay in reality. If you read any book by any great person, excluding some of the religious nuts, they will always tell you to stay in reality. Hmm. Uh, well, these people are like, they live the life they're preaching, yeah? They're preaching. And all the uh, false religious books we have, even their writers knew how to stay in reality. But they knew that they could not account for reality, so that's why they turned the reader's attention, the believer's attention to a mystical next world. Once you die, who's to say where you are and where you aren't? You're not going to come back and confirm the validity of your belief, are you? Okay, then I'll, let me give you a situation. Okay. You enter a restaurant. Yep. It's a two-story restaurant. But the condition is, first you have to eat really, really, really bad food on the ground floor. Only then, if you finish your plate, you can go upstairs and have a delicious meal. Would you go in there? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> no. No, I don't like it. The offer isn't attractive enough. No. Hell no. And so, you know, 
when you study reality, when you make Hukam your mentor, you realize the necessity of cruelty. You know, of course, I know most people are beginning to think, well, how can Sikhi be cruel? But here's the thing, you know, so when you come down and stay in reality, you realize that, you know, you can't alter reality, but you can alter your perception of what happens to you in reality when you stay within the parameters. Now, Machiavelli, he's the one who, you know, discusses the theory of by cruelty, which is two forms of cruelty. And the middle line is what he calls perceptive cruelty. Well, that's the translation at least. Mm -hmm. And let's not fool ourselves that, you know, the Catholic counter-reformation movement is telling the truth about Machiavelli, that he was a very evil individual. He was insidious. See, the issue they have with Machiavelli is this. Machiavelli always admired armed prophets. If he had heard about the Sikh gurus, he surely would have become Sikh. And I would have, you know, a Machiavellian Sikh? Yeah, pretty damn good. We need those. And basically, Machiavelli is a student of reality. That's the impression you get from his words, right? Yeah. Not just, re not just reality, the nuances of reality, I would say. Yep. And what he's essentially saying down here is that, you know, at the end of the day, the life of Jesus is useless because here's a guy who's so selfless, so humble. He allows the world to steamroll him. He's been cruel to himself, so he can't be cruel to others. They kill him. And, you know, to uh, crown this disastrous life, the claim is made after uh, altering his theological doctrines that, you know, if you allow the world to run over you, if you allow the world to, uh, you know, mercilessly persecute you, you get some reward in the afterlife. It doesn't make sense, does it? Like, why why wouldn't, you know, your maker expect you to defend their most precious gift to you, which is life itself? Well, same thing, going back to the same point. Why do we have to eat a bad meal to have a delicious one? Just give me a delicious one in the first place. Yep. So, when you look at Machiavelli, cruelty used well entails being cruel to skewer yourself and then converting it into beneficial measures, right? This is what we call constructive cruelty. Question for you. Yep. Would you like to live in a fair world? Who wouldn't? Do you think there aren't going to be failures in a fair world? I beg your pardon. Can you please repeat that? Not going to be any failures in a fair world? <laughs> well, actually, to be honest, the utopian uh, form of fairness we have today, yeah, you would say that, you know, there would be no failures in a fair world. How would you stop me from out-competing you? By crying about my work hurt feelings in a safe space? Or could, you could get a legislation signed and uh, you can, you can you know, say, well, I have to tie one hand behind his back because uh, he is uh, privileged. He's got a better brain than me. Well, I don't, but just for, just for, the, for the situation. Hey, hey, you do. No secret about that. But isn't this all heading towards socialism? No. That's the point. It's never going to be fair. It's never going to be equality of outcome. The world is indeed a cruel place. What you think and what you expect to happen is, isn't necessarily going to happen anyhow.
So learn to live in reality. It yep. is a good thing that if you if you dream something, that uh, okay, you want to say okay, in, in in the next ten years, maybe I want to build myself a nice house. So you work towards it, yeah. Realistic. You're living yep. in reality. You're taking a step by step. Yep. Yeah. So you're just understanding reality. You're understanding hokum, and you're living your life according to it, and planning. Right. So cruelty used badly. Now, this is Machiavelli. Is cruelty increasingly used without cause? Something which is unjustifiable. And that is based on his observations. So that is constructive cruelty versus destructive cruelty. There's a 20-year-old Ukrainian who's trying to defend his home from the invading Russian forces or pro-Russian forces. Yep. Now, he's a trained kid. He knows what he's doing. He's physically strong. He's got his brain... He's got an excellent eyesight. He understands the local terrain. He's able to kill a lot of invading soldiers. Is yep. that cruelty? The act of killing is cruelty. Yeah, but it's necessary because he's defending his home. See, here's the thing. This is the way to look at it from a Sikh perspective or what the Sikh perspective should be anyway. Our historic concurrence is that Guru Gobind Singh Ji formed the Khalsa in the same form as Guru Nanak, right? The beard, the moustache, the weaponry, because we know Guru Nanak retained weaponry as strange as it sounds to people. No, he didn't. He just wore a white robe and he just was walking around talking to people. That's it. You know, there used to be this Gyani, now you've reminded me, Gyani Onkar Singh Gar Padeyanewala, and um, Bro, he had the most funniest of katha that one day uh, some queen remembered Guru Nanak and Guru Nanak, uh, oh God, did Savari. He uh, rode the Shabad to the queen's place and Mardana went after him on the Ruab, Harry Potter style. <laughs> what? <laughs> he, he did say that. He didn't say Harry Potter style, but that was the image which popped in our minds when we were younger. Well, how else are we going to write a Rob? Uh, well, yeah, there are not many explanations for that one. So probably went through the air like a rocket. Probably, yeah, <laughs> probably went through the air like a rocket. I mean, look at how they have destroyed and made the image of your gurus and gursikhs into this comedy heaven thing. Bro, they have to sell their products. They'll say anything. Yep. And if Guru Gobind Singh Ji has formed the Khalsa in that form, you can see at the end of the day that even Guru Nanak not only talked about necessary cruelty, he accepted it for what it taught. Right. If you really think, if you really think about it, the lives of all of our gurus—they haven't been comfortable. No, they haven't been comfortable. Not, not at all. Far from it. Yep. So isn't that them living the reality? That is living reality. So Guru Nanak lays down this unique philosophy. He also says, Break a fool's face to form a bond with them to get them away from you. Right? Mm -hmm. And necessary cruelty. Hukam, basically. We can say even Vaheguru is necessary cruel when Vaheguru needs to be because 
it's not the definition of cruelty, but the application of cruelty, which decides the ultimate judgment on the, the result rather than the intent. So what actually happens is that hukam or necessary cruelty, which basically diverts the attention of the you know, early Sikhs away from whatever utopian paradisical view they have in lieu of what Guru Nanak teaches them, it rudely brings them to an awakening stage that if this is your philosophy, you're going to be persecuted. So that necessary cruelty ultimately manifests when Guru Arjan is fried alive, right? Roasted alive and fried alive by the Mughals. And Guru Arjan accepts that because he knows that necessary cruelty is the best of teachers. He becomes a martyr and Guru Hargobind Sahib Ji, now Guru Hargobind is the sixth Guru, knows what, you know, has happened. He has learned from necessary cruelty. He has learned from Hukam. He basically decides that in acceptance of the necessity of cruelty in life, the Sikhs are going to arm themselves and fight off their persecutors. Right? We did. We did. And we still are. But if we weren't to accept the reality if we went to accept hukam, if we were to avoid cruelty, well, it's going to get us nowhere. Mm, it could. Okay. Think of this thing. Yep. Uh, live in a developed world where everything is provided to you by either by the state or services. Yep. Yep. If suddenly something would, would happen today, maybe like, like a solar storm or something, you are out of power, there's no electricity, every single electronics object is fried, no longer yep. functioning. Yep. How many people do you think will die in the first week? Probably millions. Nah, man, more than a billion, I would say. <coughs> Pardon me. Yep. They, they wouldn't die. Well, they would a large number of them would die at the hands of other people who would, who would have nothing to eat or they would have to so fight for the very limited resources there are. Factories are not running, farms are not running, deliveries are not coming. Everything that you had in the fridge, it's rotten now. How are you going to survive? And that, that the core realities of the world are going to come and knock on your door and you, you'll be totally unprepared for it. Hmm. In this case, if your child is hungry, you it's, it's like, let's say, a six-month-old six kid you have. Yep. You'll need to feed the kid or you need to feed, feed the mother so she can best feed him, him or her. Yep. You see your own family dying in front of your eyes. Aren't you going to be cruel about it? If you say, okay, I might need to kill somebody. This is the situation. Mm. In that scenario, are you prepared to carry out cruelty? You have to be. You have to be. Just I mean, for, just like yep. this, we had this this Corona uh, pandemic. People were stocking on toilet paper. Yep. People were fighting for toilet paper. Yep. It wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> needed that much. It's a basic necessity, but you don't need mountains of it. You don't need 50 yep. rolls of it anyhow for one person. But people mm -hmm. still, they were so afraid. They were fighting each other, like real physical fights, like UFC style, punching and kicking each other and hitting with objects, fighting yep. for toilet paper. That should give you an idea how cruel the real world is.
you just need to travel to some, let's say, some poor country to see how tough life of people is. And they live the life every single day in the same manner. Get up in the morning, get some water from the forest, river, waterfall, wherever that is. Then you have probably have to hunt, you have to grow your own food, then you have to you know, look for thieves and robbers. No justice. And if you, if you read about uh, when the barbarians marched into Rome, what they observed. Mm. People were obsessed with, oh, my house has got this thing and that thing. Obsessed about luxuries, what kind of clothes they were wearing, what kind of spices they had in their houses, uh, jewelry and everything. They just walked in and destroyed Rome. We once had a special forces captain come in to uh, teach us. And the man was American, and one of the questions they asked, and this is a question which many people do have in their minds when you study this um, whole situation closely. Why is it that, you know, why is it that special forces soldiers, these highly trained, you know, human killing machines, are deployed to root out few village boys with guns? Have you ever thought about that? I have, but I'll let you explain. It's because, you know, these village boys, these kids, come from very stark, starkly different backgrounds, right? They live in abject poverty, semi-primitive conditions. Their daily existence is very barbaric, right? It's made them tough. It's made them survivors. Mm-hmm. During their training, you know, they're given a gun, they're given bombs, they're expected to blow themselves up. You know, basically what we're saying is that they are mentally transformed into these uh, killing machines by the life they live. Whereas the, uh, you know, special forces soldiers in these uh, Western countries, they have to be pushed for their transformation, if you know what I mean. So when you have these kids, you know, taking on these conventional forces, these kids are going to win, right? They are. Because they're going to have nothing to lose. Yep. But when they are confronted by someone who has an equal mental drive, they do lose. But in some cases, they do get the best of the other party. So why can't the Ukrainian, Ukrainian just hug the Russian invader and everything will be just fine? The war will end right at the moment. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. And see, that's exactly the thing. So these village boys have accepted, you know, cruelty, the power of cruelty, though they can't distinguish between what is necessary and what is unnecessary. If you look you at the seats, yep. Do you want a Nobel Peace Prize right now? Uh, probably not for what is, you know, good to me. I would like to have one. I could just go over there and, uh, you know, do a langar over there and invite both sides. And that, that's it. World War averted. Give it positive vibes. Yeah, and I'll also display a lot of flags. Then I will also contest a painting competition. And the winner, winner will get uh, a participation trophy, not the first trophy. Will it be gender friendly? Oh, yeah. Everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter if you're human or an animal or whatever gender 
wherever you come from, any nationality, even illegals can come in. <laughs> See, the whole issue, the whole gamut of this comes down to is that we can't tolerate cruelty, right? If life is a bit cruel to us, we take the sleeping pills and off ourselves because we haven't been taught what the necessity of living strongly is. We we read in Gurbani Dukhadaru Sukhrogapya, but how many people understand that what it's saying is that Vaheguru is necessarily cruel, Hukam is necessarily cruel. Necessarily cruel because cruelty is a necessity to keep us going in life. It teaches us, it builds us. You know, when Guru Nanak talks about Saram Khand, people who have accepted Hukam, who have accepted its necessity and its cruelty and in its fairness, those people enter Saram Khand where, you know, we can't describe Saram Khand. That's what Guru Nanak says. It's a workshop where, you know, the intuition, the being, the essence of great warriors and great mystics is fashioned. Mystics and warriors, two individuals who undergo the greatest of trials and tribulations, right? And they mm. emerge, you know, they emerge as warriors. They emerge as individuals who can use cruelty. Now, Guru Hargobind Sahib Ji killing Mughals, the act of killing is cruel, but it's a necessary cruelty to right society. Right? To hmm. ward off oppression. You need to talk the oppressor's language to ward off oppression to a certain degree. Now, for example, if you look at it, Guru Gobind Singh Ji destroys the village of Alsun. The Rangars were harassing the Sikhs and their woman Guru Maharaj destroys it. However, he tells his Sings not to rape their woman because that's just unnecessarily cruel. Yep. Right. Guru Nanak wanted his Sikhs to be powerful and not the work for those we have today. He wanted his Sikhs to be very powerful. So when you're in a position of power, you can distinguish between the forms of cruelty. Like I said, the definition of cruelty is not applicable here but how it's being utilized. So we have agreed that the act of killing is cruel, depriving someone of their life. But if it's necessarily cruel, it's justified. But if it's unnecessarily cruel, it is, you know, unjustified. That's a crime. Yep. That's a crime, right? So when we consider something, Hannibal marched over the Alps to confront the Romans, right? It didn't go well at the end of the day. Unfortunately, the Americans... Uh, lionized Hannibal and they haven't learned you know much lessons from the Romans if they had they wouldn't have suffered what they did in Afghanistan but you know progressing on Hannibal had a you know multi-thousand strong army and each cohort each company each regiment each battalion spoke a different language right mm -hmm. so how do you think Hannibal kept them in control tell me he employed cruelty when he needed to. Even Alexander disciplined his troops. Yep. Uh, if you remember what Dr. Balwan Singh Tilo, uh, Tilo told us based on contemporary Persian, Gurmukhi and uh, Rajasthani documents, do you know what the uh, penalty for rape under Baba Banda Singh was? Execution, of course. But do you know how they were executed? The method, no. Tied to a cannon and blow into bits in front of their families, their villages, their friends, their cities. It was spectacularly open. 
Well, the punishment fits the crime. Punishment fits the crime, but necessary cruelty also establishes a limit. It shows something. See, this is what my belief is about why we have long hair is that, you know, it makes us look like beasts. But the Khalsa is one who has mastered both the inner savage and the inner human. So a civilized warrior who can unleash savagery when required. That is the true Gurmukh, the true Gursik, the true Khalsa. And if you look at it, Sikhs have used necessary cruelty when they have had to. I mean, at the most common of levels, when Nuab Kapoor Singh, uh, you know, uh, welded 65 desperate jathas into 11 missiles. How many Sikhs do you think were deprived of leadership positions and the luxuries which came with them at the time? Well, a lot of them. Right? Out of 65 to 70 Sardars, you only have 11 Sardars left. Right? That's what happened, yep. That's what happened. It had to be done. An act of necessary cruelty, which had to be done. Now, what would be unnecessary cruelty is when the Ramgariya brothers, not Jassa Singh, but the others who uh, helped Hari Singh Pangi, they slew an er innocent merchant for his money and kept it for themselves. Right? Mm. What would that, be that unnecessary? Yep. Yeah, that was unnecessary. That was a crime. That was a crime. What would be unnecessary cruelty? Now, if you look at Banda Singh, because that example is more relevant, is that Banda was necessarily cruel when he had to be, right? He executed enemies, he executed traitors, he executed criminals. Uh, the Akbare Darbare Mullah, which was the contemporary news intelligence circular of the Mughal emperors, mentions that after the sack of Sirhand, Sikhs made a rule that even killing a stray dog was punishable by death under them. And one of the things you need to remember here is that Pir Budusha was much loved by the masses, right? Even though he was a Muslim, he was a very liberal Muslim. By no definition of the term Muslim can he be considered a Muslim today. True. Will you agree? True. So what happened to Pir Budusha, as we know, was that he was finally killed by you know, the governors of his own city. Not many people know that. Yep. Not many people know that. So Usman Khan was the one who killed him. And this was in Sadhora. And then when Baba Banda Singh attacked Sadhora, the peasants were so angry, they massacred even children in Sadhora. It did happen, yeah. Right? They executed them without any mercy. Now, when Banda Singh saw this, he realized that he had to control the peasants. He had to rein them in. So what he did after that was he made very tough war laws for his own army and own peasant battalions that they should not stray from the mission at hand. Right? They should not alienate people any further than is necessary. We can't have too many, uh, we can't have a growth of excessive enemies. Well, there's also this rule that if you, if you need to be cruel as a, as a person in a position of power, you need to get through as quickly as possible. Oh, Cruelty it has to be, be a long term. Persons. 
Yep, it has to be a swift process. It has to be very swift and very rapid, you know. I mean, Guru Gobind Singh Ji destroyed the village at Alsun and drove all the uh, Rangar say out. Of course, Tadriyawala will probably listen to this and say, Nay, Jiya Pujari Machavel, Matavel, yeah, you know, screw him anyway. But what I'm saying down here is that there are some important lessons down here as well. You are cruel swiftly, rapidly, and for a purpose. You should be able to justify to yourself and to witnesses. But unnecessary cruelty, psychopathy, that gets you nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right? That gets you nowhere. How many children of their enemies did Sikhs execute? As a matter of policy, I wouldn't say any. Any. Right? Uh, I believe Jahan Khan... Yeah, he was the one who was Abdali's main general, I believe. Yes, he, he, the coward ran away and left his family near Kashmir while fighting the Khalsa, and they did not rape the woman, but treated them like their mothers and sent them back in safety. Yep. Right? Tarbuland Khan, who was of, uh, Abdali's uh, uncle, he, if I remember correctly, was it the fort at uh, Rotak or Rotas? Rotasfor is, uh, I think it's in Rawalpindi, in that part of Punjab, northwest Punjab. Yep, so what happened was that down there at that fort, if I remember correctly, one of these forts, he actually besieged it, if I remember correctly, because Jarat Singh Sukarchakia was there. Yes, so this was one of the Sukarchakia territories, and he decided to finish uh, Jarat Singh off. And uh, Jarad Singh actually managed to chase him into the fort, right? And uh, Jarad Singh knew that he could not, you know, besiege it for long. So what Jarad Singh did was he decided, you know what, let's go. He made a big show about retreating. And as Sarabuland Khan came out, Jarad Singh ambushed him and took over the fort and imprisoned him inside. Now, the Singhs started executing all the Afghans identified with atrocities with committing atrocities on innocent, uh, you know, non-combatants and on Sikhs particularly. So they started killing them. But Sarbaland wasn't touched by, you know, Jarat Singh. And at the end, what happened was that, you know, after nearly a year, Sarbaland Khan offered Jarat Singh two options. One, that Jarat Singh declare himself a king and he, Sarbaland, would help him destroy Abdali and crown him as king of Punjab and Afghanistan. Or two, that Sarbuland Khan be put to death because he could see no purpose in life if he wasn't to serve a, you know, prominent, powerful figure like either Jarat Singh or Abdali. And Jarat Singh did neither. And if Jarat Singh had decided to do to him what they did to Sikhs, that would be unnecessarily cruel. The necessary cruelty Jarat Singh used, he utilized, was to execute Sarbuland's forces in front of him, but at the same time leave him alive after validating his innocence, so when Sarbuland went back to Abdali and he started singing praises of the Sikhs, Abdali was pretty shocked. Take a break. All right. So as you can clearly see after this short break we have had, cruelty has its place in the application of life. It does. Very important place. So Sarbuland Khan was a very important aspect of Abdali's armor, which uh, Jarat Singh managed to break away. And, you know, one of the uh, <clears throat> biggest problems we have with at least the uh, classical Sikh texts 
is they're too heavily mythologized, but there are lessons in there. And that's an argument I made last time in the Gurpat Prakash episode that, you know, just as statesmen and generals study like Thucydides, Aristotle, or, you know, other such similar historians, philosophers like Machiavelli as well, we should be studying our own Sikh classics as well, because, you know, Accepting hukam also means that you do not be unnecessarily, unnecessarily cruel to yourself in the name of selflessness. Cruel to yourself, cruel to oneself. Uh, tell me more about this thing. Okay. So one of these online forums I was traversing on Reddit, there was this idiotic comment from a Sikh that, I'm, well, someone who claimed they were a Sikh, probably a Sino, Sikh in name only, that uh, because we Sikhs believe in selfless service, I want to cut my hair for cancer uh, patients so they can have wigs. Okay. Why would you do that? Mm, because you got a pearl heart? Wouldn't it be better to teach cancer sufferers how to live with cancer rather than cutting your own cash off your own identity? Well, this stupid utopian, I mean, Sikhi was never about selflessness in the first place. Where did the selflessness come from? Oh, the English brought it here. The Babas brought in by them, let's say trained by them, preached this version of Sikhi. It's all about peace and service and truth. Well, not truth, but yeah. Yep. And unfortunately, yeah. this isn't reality because really, you know, the true Dan. The true donation in Gurbani in the Guru Granth Sahib is that of wisdom. If someone has cancer, teach them to live with reality, empower them to live fruitfully, and then try finding a cure. I mean, you know, hair can be acquired from other, you know, individuals. The key is your uniform, you know, at the end of the day. Now, you tell me something during the Guru's time. You know, many Hindus had their hair shaved off. Many women had their hair shaved off as a sign of insult. Many low castes had their hair shaved off by Sanatani fascists. How many Sikhs went around cutting off their hair to show solidarity with them? Well, there were a lot of them, but uh, the Pujari never showed it to, to us. <laughs> See, and all the selfless stupidity, like giving, you know, uh, interviews online that are uh, we Sikhs cannot say that we are Sikhs, not Muslims, because it means throwing another community under the bus. All this woke, stupid shit has gotten us to a point where people are actually... are. See, here's one of the things I've noticed. Some of the Driyawala's followers in America have taken off their kakars because they say these kakars are made by Pujaris and they've started drinking alcohol because they say it is made by the Pujari. Well, okay. And the other side hasn't done it. Uh, these babas, these sampradas, these jatas, they haven't done a proper job in the first place that suddenly you have this work delusion coming in. Both sides want to avoid cruelty, but, but being cruel is a necessity of life. This is something they haven't taught anyone at the end of the day. Otherwise, our, why else are our idiot white children folding over in the face of life's cruelty? When Sikhs were in power, Missile uh, era, Bandha Singh Bahadur era, or Ranjit Singh era, did we share yep. power with, with anybody? No. Why not? Why would you share power with anyone who can turn against you? I mean, look at 
towards the end of Ranjit Singh's reign. That's what we did. And look at the look at the Siapa it got us today. Well, aren't we selfless? <laughs> no. We have gotten all this wrong. We have got cruelty wrong. We have got selflessness wrong. We have got all this wrong. Okay, so you're telling me when in 1947 my grandfather had to defend his entire village, he, let's say, killed a few Libyan suspects, so he will, he should have shared his wealth with them, probably should have given them a few girls from the village? Uh, probably given them his own daughter, shaved off his hair, his beard, you know, he should have decolonized himself because these are all colonial-created binaries and they're interlinked with white supremacy. Ah, so the rifle he was holding was made uh, was a, was a Lee Enfield rifle, so British World War One World One rifle. So shouldn't have you used know, that. I, you know, when I see these scholars with the decolonial aspect, you know what I think? Tell me. I find it really interesting that people all do who cry about colonialism and white supremacism. Supremacism either they, uh, they live there or they chose to move there. Probably be the first ones to start crying when their citizen is deprived. Well, I don't think that that's not going to happen, but anytime soon, let's say. But it's hypocrisy. If somebody was to move to Punjab and say, oh, it's a Sikh supremacist state, am I supposed to take my turban off to accommodate them? The stupidity, it all comes from this. It's gotten so worse that one of these fat clowns once uh, contacted me on a platform called Discord. I will be very disappointed if Baba Banda Singh does what history said he does, because I don't think Baba Banda Singh as a Gurmuk should have genocided people. And I told him, well, it's war, collateral damage happens. Yeah, but collateral damage is bad. And I replied back, well, who gives a fuck about your bloody sentiments, you little bitch? At the end of the day, it's war. People are going to die. People are going to get hurt. What else do you think they were doing? Having uh, bloody wrestling matches between soldiers? not just war. I just told you come from 947. We left our village, we went to the next village because the neighboring Sikh villages had like, gathered in a single village, so, so better defense. Yep. And the same day in the evening, some men went back to retrieve some stuff. The local yep. Muslims told them not to because it's no longer yours within less, less than 10 hours morning and evening, less than 10 hours. They said this is no longer yours. See, that's the thing. If you allow yourself to be steamrolled over, that's what's going to happen. And that's what's exactly happening with us. Today, as Sikhs, okay. all these decolonizing scholars, all these Jatha, Sampradas, Babas, all of them have rendered us into toothless tigers. Right? We can't take cruelty. We can't be constructively cruel when we need to. And when everything was going that way, Tadri comes and takes the cup. <laughs> right all of them running away from the necessity of cruelty life can't be cruel believe in democracy life can't okay. be cruel let's do okay. Vaigruvay yep uh, a point here yep Neville Chamberlain hmm. did his appeasement work it only you know, that appeasement policy, let me uh, sum it up. This is how Nelson Mandela saw it. You know, Mandela was in prison for a terrorist offense. Conviction, yeah. Yep. And 
this is what Mandela had to basically say. I'm just paraphrasing him that in India, at least, some ruling British elites were humane enough to see that violence cannot achieve much because the Indians always outnumbered them, right? Mm-hmm. It was a calculated act of humanity. In Africa, things were different that even if the Africans did outnumber the whites, unfortunately, the whites were very powerful and they could do what they wanted to. They had no grounds for being humane. So that's why violence was a necessity. Hmm. So does that answer your question? In a different light, yes. Right. We have discussed Peter Buddusha, we have discussed the Gurus. You know, end of the day, there are two forms of cruelty. Do not be unnecessarily cruel, right? You defend yourself on a street. Makes no sense going to the guy's house and beating the shit out of his pregnant wife, right? Makes no sense going after his kids. But on the other hand, if you allow that guy to beat the crap out of you, well, then aren't you being ungrateful to God who has given you this precious life? No, I just need to go to the police and they'll sort it out. (laughs) That doesn't work. You and me know this as well. I mean, if someone gets beaten up and they get killed, are they able to go to the police? Nah, bro, our, uh, our house got uh, invaded uh, once and uh, called, you know, 111 emergency number and say, is the perpetrator still there? And I say, well, I can't see him anymore. I say, okay, it's not an emergency then. Right, and unfortunately, that's the thing down here which we're coming into, that we're being uh, rendered too dependent on the state or on someone else. We're being made into paper tigers. But cruelty is a necessity. We need to be necessarily cruel in life. I mean, bloody hell, let me tell you something. Our next episode is probably going to get us cancelled by cancel culture. This might be our second to last episode anyhow. And I had a talk with a doctor in California who deals with gender dysphoria. I mean, I know you can tell which way this is going, and I hope the listeners can tell which way this is going as well. Mm -hmm. What he told me was that he deals with Punjabi migrants, Punjabi migrants, you know, like your parents who have moved over to Western countries, they raised us like they would have raised us back home. You know, we got beaten. We had a harsh uh, regime imposed on us. We turned out fine, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of. You're a successful entrepreneur. I'm really successful in my field. Lots of money, you know. We we're better off than most people. You know, thank God for that. Most of the kids who are raised through Western methodology, because, you know, our physician does deal with gender dysphoria, those kids are the ones who are afflicted by gender dysphoria. Hmm. Those kids cannot take cruelty. One of the cases he described to me was of a child called Benjamin. It's probably a Punjabi child, but, uh, you know, he's not at liberty to say that, but... um. Benjamin comes from a family of five girls, and he's the eldest. So this is the sec- uh, this is the first child, and then five girls, so six children in total. Mm-hmm. 
mum is overbearing and narcissist. And her family back in India was richer than the dad's family. So you know how that dynamic works out anyway. And dad is usually a way he's working maybe uh, over 10 hours, five days a week. And the next two days he uh, doesn't, it seems he doesn't get along well with mum. So he's living, you know, somewhere else. He's not really with the family all the time. So no one can take care of the boy. Mm-hmm. the boy ultimately started claiming that he's a girl. He's just stuck in the wrong body. It wasn't helped that school counselors put this idea in his head about transitions and puberty blockers. And what the physician did is he's one of the few clinics in the States which can use conversion therapy, right? And mm-hmm. they took the kid to him because the parents were concerned about this entire transition process. It kills your fertility. A trans man is essentially a woman with a man's body, but she cannot change the inner essence. So a trans woman is not a woman. A trans man is not a man. And ultimately, when they took Benjamin over to this physician and he explained to them everything about puberty blockers, he started treating the child. You know, he used a treatment which has been proven effective for 40 years. Basically, it turned out that the parenting model at home avoided all forms of cruelty. So now when Benjamin sees his sisters receiving a lot of love from the mother, he feels that the mum is being cruel. So the reason his mind thinks that this cruelty is happening is because he's not a girl. Well, he wants to fit in. He wants to fit in. And ultimately, they started him on a you know four-tire course. And now after uh, three months, the boy's actually showing signs of improving. He's accepted his gender identity, you know, his uh, boyness, his malehood. And ultimately, the uh, physician has had the parents come in for a counseling session. And it turns out that his advice, this is someone who's born and bred in the States, is that the, you know, Indian mode of parenting, of course, it's pretty abusive. But to some degree, it's also very effective because it inures you to cruelty, it teaches you how to accept cruelty in your life. <clears throat> Do you think there's way too much mollycoddling of objects in this time, in this, let's say, in this 21st century? Well, basically, the thing is, at home, we are teaching them how to avoid cruelty. You know, we're not differentiating between necessary cruelty and unnecessary cruelty. If you do something stupid and get slapped by your parents, well, yeah, that is necessary cruelty, but it teaches you a lesson. You know, it keeps you safe. Unnecessary cruelty is when someone comes and tries beating you up on the street for no reason. So we are not teaching them the necessity of cruelty and standing up to unnecessary, unjustified cruelty. Basically, we are trying to mollycoddle them. And then ultimately, when hookum, when reality, when life bites back, those kids fall over straight away. If you see your kid sitting in the lawn, digging a hole with a stick, what are you going to yep. feel? Sitting on the lawn, digging a hole with a stick. Mm-hmm. Pretty damn angry. <laughs> I'm just going to shake your head and say, this kid's special. Look, every child in their own way is special, but you have to make them special, if you know what I mean. You have to inure them to life. You have to make them accept pain. You aren't going to be there all the time to hold their arm, are you? Bro, 
in my opinion, every child is just a child. There's nothing special about them except that they are your child, children, yeah? Yep. So to tell everybody, oh, you're so special, you're so precious, I think you're just feeding them narcissism from day one. I, I mean, I would say that typically you can tell the child that, but then at the end of the day, it shouldn't be to the point where you're actually protecting them from the reality of life. Let's not say protecting actually lying to them about the reality of life. Well, if, if my kid does really well at, in any field or studies or sports or, you know, he does something really brave or something, of course, wouldn't appreciate. I'm not going to tell he's, he's special because he's my child. Hmm. Yeah. Simple. Agreed. So there's no entitlement bred into him and uh, they must learn that they can't get everything they want. They must know the, what the word no means. It Recently, not too, long, not too long ago, I saw somebody doing something really productive. They were trying to tire their kid out before going on a two-hour flight. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so they, they were just running around the kid uh, on the... Uh, escalator up and down here and there. Yeah. Yep. I said, okay, this this guy's really good. So he doesn't want the kids to stay awake on the flight and to cry and make everybody's life miserable. He's trying to make yep. sure that the kid tires out and goes to sleep. Hmm. Yeah. So good people do exist. He understands that it will be cruel on on us to listen to the wailings of his own child. So there is unnecessary cruelty, but if you're necessarily cruel to your child and carry them out, peaceful flight, I suppose. Yeah, well, child-free restaurants exist. Child-free restaurants exist. Damn, I never knew that. But um, yeah, yeah. Pretty there's, much... there's, there's, there's a certain time period where you, where you can't enter with a child. Or they could say below 12 or below 14, not allowed. Well, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Do they have any work-free restaurants? Uh, they do, but uh, they're somewhere deep south in Louisiana swamps. <laughs> With the alligators. With the alligators, they serve you the gator and you have to fire a shot after every meal. That's pretty much it. So, what would your takeaway from, these episode, from this episode be at least? I would say that cruelty, okay, real life is cruel. I mean, real life in general is cruel, but we as human beings strive to do better, yeah? We try to make our life comfortable, but we must never move away from the realities of life. Cruelty is necessary. I have the capabilities to be cruel. I have the capabilities to be good. This is what I choose to be, but if I need be, I can be cruel, and, and, and that won't be unjust. History proves it. Politics prove, proves it. Politicians know it. Military people know it. Even the doctors know it. They will hold you down and force the medicine down your throat. You won't like it, but that's what needs to be done. That, that, that's the reality. That is the reality. Mm -hmm. See, something interesting just happened. You know, there's a clown in the USA who follows us on the Facebook group. And according to this individual, you know, the uh, they believe that the Kirpan is a Pujari creation that the Hindus gave the Sikhs their five Qatars. And um, what I did comment to him was that he was saying that, you know, that a video from Indiana Jones 
where, uh, you know, Joins takes out a gun against a knife and he's uh, saying that, you know, the Kirpan is Pujari Vati and we should ditch the Kirpan. And I asked him, you have to be a special sort of a stupid to wield a knife in front of a gun. I thought you protested, yeah, well, a lot supported democracy and zero tolerance for guns. You lot would just allow them to gun you down, wouldn't you? And you know what he says? <laughs> Tell me. You need to grow up, face up to realities of today, least just some joint Pujari bandwagon. Bloody hell, his English sucks. Or Bandu born in a barn mentality, your twisted logic sucks. <laughs> Tell them there are no barns in India. <laughs> also, if you, if you remember the thing was the Supreme Court decision in America that the police have no obligation to protect you? Uh, look, when their beloved Paisab was being harassed in America, they were running around like headless chickens, and now they're saying they need no weapons when it was their guys who had the guns that time in uh, 29, 2018, which were being used afterwards by students. I'll give you an extreme example of necessary cruelty. Yep. Because it's, uh, it's a matter of national security, so it wasn't discussed much on the news anyhow. A few years ago, uh, you know, India's NSA, National Security Advisor? Yep. Yes. Yes. So his residence, somebody tried to invade yep. and they rammed an SUV into the gate of his residence. Yep. The yep. commandos kept, captured that guy. Yeah. But the commandos were fired because they arrested that guy. They didn't shoot him because it could have been a suicide bomber. They took the risk of arresting him. The yeah. security of the state, or let's say the law, or the, their training demanded that they had to shoot that invader, not arrest him. Mm. They lapsed, they were fired. This is how cruel the real world is. It is, but then you set a precedent, don't you? You set a precedent with this sort of stuff that failure will not be tolerated. Of course not. It's the state. If the if they the tolerate failure, the state would collapse. How many people, you know, you can't tolerate stupidity, and this is where it ties in again, the necessity of cruelty. You have to be cruel in life. You have to be constructively cruel in life to get somewhere in life. This is part of hukam. This is reality. You stuff up and even reality teaches you bitter lessons, doesn't it? So if hukam is your mentor, then, you know, emulate it and all it does. Do you know where the temple of Apollo was in ancient Greece? Uh, the temple of Apollo, let me remember. Don't tell me I should know temple of Apollo. That was in Delphi. Well, I'm asking you because I'm not too sure. It was either in the city of Troy, that's on modern-day Turkish coast. Yep. So when Xerxes invaded Greece in 485 BC, I think? Or yep. 467 BC? Somewhere around well, there. Well, the movie 300 is based on that, on that historical event, yeah? Yep. So, so some Greeks, they surrendered to him and the Persian emperor moved them into the eastern part of his empire. Yep. So when Alexander invaded Persia a few decades later, I think it was like 140 years something. Yep. He found a Greek-speaking community in the eastern part of the Persian Empire. You know what he did with them? What did he do? 
they killed every single one of them. Why? Execution for high treason. Yep. I mean, the missiles did, you know, look at how the missiles avenged Baba Varpak Singh. Not just that, it was an example to his army that if you even veer off a single inch, the same will be done to you. One of the reasons why he was so successful. They said these people committed treason. They chose to surrender to the enemy. Now they are living here peacefully. They were speaking Greek. They had the Greek architecture. Uh, they had you know, olives and wines and everything. It was almost like a homecoming for his troops. But he chose to kill all of them. Amazing, isn't it? Brutal, bro. Brutal. History teaches us so many lessons, but we refuse to learn from them because history is an aspect of reality. Even now, we refuse to learn from Hukum itself and we wander around in these delusions. And when those delusions don't come real, when they don't bear fruit, look at how we are running around crying. I mean, like I told you about the Nahang and Panth Prakash, that man accepted reality straight away and then surely he would have been part of their uh, confabulations afterwards that where did we go wrong that we got uh, hit so badly. But then in a matter of three months, they were back in action straight away. Mm -hmm. They were. They were. And goes to show you the necessity of cruelty. That's what it is. If you oh, believe also, you live for a... Yep. Let me give you one... Sorry for interrupting. Let me give more, one more example. You know, uh, Marcus Luttrell. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lone survival American Navy SEAL. Yep, he's a legend. Uh, well, in the community, yes. Yep. They capture the shepherd and they say, okay, we, we, either we kill them or you tie them down or let them go. Because if this right. guy runs away and informs the Taliban, then we are dead. They let him go. He went, he did exactly that. The Taliban came onto him and killed every single one of them. But he survived because he took refuge in an Afghan village. That guy who gave him refuge, I think it was Gul Muhammad, his name or something. He lost a lot of his family members fighting Taliban because he couldn't he couldn't take the decision to kill one shepherd. Right. And that's the reality of life, isn't it? That's, that's the ultimate brutal reality you will face at times that are you ready to cut off your most cherished? Well, I wouldn't say most cherished ideals, but are you ready to cut off stereotypical beliefs? In, in my opinion, it's living in the moment. This is what I am. This is what's happening around me. These are my options. These are my limitations. What's the best way to go about it? Guru Nanak taught us to live in the moment, but unfortunately, Guru Nanak Ji, we forgot it. Well, we have forgotten a lot of, a lot of it, a large part of it. Large parts of it. And that's what it is, the necessity of cruelty. Cruelty is necessary. It's very, very, very necessary in life. That's why you have special forces, but you have no special hugging forces or special clapping forces. That's why Tadriyawala has so tight security around him. Oh, <laughs> they say it's, it's been given by the state. We can't say no to it, but he still got the security shell around him. So, yeah. yeah. There you go. So hypocrisy all around. Wherever you look, you'll see hypocrisy. Best thing to do is read Gurbani, understand Gurbani, 
accept Gurbani and then live the Sikh lifestyle. And cruelty is an aspect of it. You will be taught lessons by cruelty, even if someone is being unnecessarily cruel to you, like Mir Manu was being to the Khalsa. I know this is an understatement. He was being tyrannical. But if you alter your perception that that unnecessary cruelty is necessary, it's teaching you something, not only will you triumph over that cruelty, you will triumph over further obstacles in life. If you don't fight your bully, how will that, that cruelty end? That's the thing. You have to talk the bully's language. You have to be equally cruel to stop the bully. Well, I did. I introduced somebody's face to a brick. And he never bullied me again. He never tried to. My, my hero. <laughs> well, I did. The guy was a lot bigger man. I ran home crying because I thought I had killed him because there was blood on his face. I know that happens. I know I did that as well. I mean, I didn't tell them at home for three days until they found it from the school, but they were pretty damn proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And people who undergo cruelty and use necessary cruelty, they're also the best people who do not become bullies. Yep. If you know your own power, you become more responsible with it, yeah? More responsible. But at the end of the day, in this world, the weak suffer, the weak are pushed away, and only the strong thrive. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, Guru Nanak always talked about the Sikhs being strong and having a backbone. That's what Gurbani does. It's pretty... Uh, pretty uh, paradisical and, uh, you know, happy image we have that the meek shall inherit the earth. But why should the meek inherit the earth? Because when the meek inherit the earth, they will only embolden tyranny further because they're too weak to confront it. That's a very interesting point. Right. Why does the tyrant fear the just? Hmm, if you put a woke person in charge, cruelty will ensue. Cruelty will ensue. That's right, that's right. The tyrant fears the just person because he knows that retribution will follow in a language he understands and he's scared of understanding. Have you, have you seen the video of uh, the execution of the Romanian dictator? Uh, no. I think it was Ceausescu or his name because I can't pronounce Romanian names. Yep. Yeah, so that's how he met, met his end. People just killed him and just uh, was side of his presidential palace, or I think, or the parliament or something. His and his wife, both of them just yeah. gunned down. That's it. This is something interesting down here to end this episode. Do you know Cleon the Athenian? Man, I've forgotten about him. Sorry. Okay, so these are some of his rules hardship is easier to fend off than prosperity to maintain. Okay. Free things destroy empires. Pity, rhetoric, leniency. Show mercy only to others like yourself, but never to those who you know will never return the favor. Hmm. Good point. Right. Do not Good show point. leniency. Yep. I mean, if you look at it, do not show leniency to the unchanging as they will forever be weak. 
And what he means by them being weak is they will always come after you. Explains why Guru Gobind Singh Ji set up Banda Singh and the Khalsa forces to take out the Mughals while he was also negotiating with them at the same time. Hmm. Do not tolerate another's revolt against you because if they are right to revolt, then you're wrong to rule. Okay. Right. Explains Maharaja Ranjit Singh and why he threshed so many of these uh, minor princes and kings into submission. Do not betray yourself when in ease. Always avenge grievous, wound, grievous wounds. Hmm. Red explains Baba Banda Singh executing all the uh, all the oppressors of the Sikhs and the Dal Khalsa as well. You know, they executed quite a lot of oppressors. And people who wrong others tend to keep at it until they finish the job-fearing retaliation. Hmm. These are the rules of reality. Would you use these rules in your business? Oh, I always do. I always do. That's needed. That's needed. That's needed. Because when you're in a high stakes game, your virtue necessarily changes. Now, of course, like I said, if you beat up a guy who's attacking you on the street justified, you go and beat up his family, that's not justified. No, they were just that person who has directly offended me or, you know, harmed me. I might right. make fun of, fun of his family, but I'm not going to hurt them. <laughs> yep. So to recap, two forms of cruelty, necessary cruelty and unnecessary cruelty, life, hukam, wahiguru, they use necessary cruelty to teach you lessons and you should use necessary cruelty when and where justified as a result. Agreed. Agreed. Until next time, Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa.